0: At this time, I ask you to, change, to turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. We're back in Elijah's story. And if you were there recently, uh, the call of Elisha, you see that we're skipping a chapter where Ahab fights against Syria. The Lord provides for him and he wins But it doesn't involve Elijah, and since we're covering Elijah's story, we're going to skip to that chapter. They'll reference it just a little bit. I want to begin by saying, before I read the chapter, that this is one of those coffee sermons. And by coffee sermons, I mean that if I preach this passage faithfully and preach it well, I believe all of us will be a little uncomfortable. And the, the word of God is supposed to do that. We should expect to be challenged and shook up when we meet God in his word. But I do issue an open invitation because I, I know when I cover a topic as broad as what what Naboth and his vineyard bring up, that there's... It just isn't possible to be completely nuanced all the time. It's impossible to give uh, complete reasonings and scripture background. And So I invite you, if there's something you hear, and you want to talk with me, we'll go out for coffee or you know, be socially distanced on a lawn, you can ask, what did you mean by that? Or, What's your biblical basis for that? Or I'd like to know more and dig deeper into this. So with that said, and I really do enjoy talking about these things let us go now to God's word. and Let us be both challenged and amazed. 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel besides the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and, he sa- and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat your bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words... upon his house this is god's word when i was a youth director at my previous church had to have been over 15 years ago now we went one summer to a music festival called creation Creation is, is sort of the, the Christian counter, perhaps, to Woodstock. Um, it's, it's, in a, it's an agape farm, a big farm, and, and, and PA, and it's a huge deal. Right? There's massive stages. You've got your big stages. You've got your little stages. Um, but then you can, if you sign up soon enough, you can camp there the entire week. And what happens is the sooner you sign up, you get, you get stuck in this this queue. You get placed in this queue. And then the fields, which are just surrounding the stage and, and the, the main area, they kind of shrink or expand depending on how many people you, you commit to having. And So the site can flex and uh, once it gets locked in, you're given your site depending on how many people you had. And we had a pretty small group. I don't know, 10 to 15 people went. And um, you know, we, we had a few tents and we had a few campers. We set up our awning and a, and a picnic table. We, we had a little ring for our fire and it was great. But, you know, there were other people who were around us, and these people were clearly, um, they were professionals. Like, they went big. They, they had RVs and pop-up campers. They pretty much brought everything but their living room. And there was one group right next to us that ran a generator, right? They, they had a bigger and better plot. And they had a generator to power all their stuff. They had fridges and all that kind of stuff. And as they did that, they set up their generator in the place that was most convenient and efficient for them. After all, why wouldn't they? Well, there was only one problem for us. They directed the sound and the exhaust of their generator. They kind of stuck it in between two of their RVs. And, and had it away from them. So the sound and exhaust of their generator pointed directly into our little plot. And now, fortunately, they didn't run the generator nonstop. But the entire week, it was a little wearing and it was definitely irritating. You know, we, you know, we would be doing our thing and all of a sudden this generator would kick on, a little bit of smoke, lots of noise. And there was just something in the back of my mind thinking, this. Isn't right. right. They're getting all the benefits of the generator, and we're getting all the downsides. How does that work? You know, and the thing is, they probably didn't even realize that they were causing us a headache and inconvenience. But they did all the same. And honestly, it wasn't right. It wasn't just. Well, that's a tiny little story of something that's not fair, which pales in comparison to what you see here with Ahab and Naboth. And yet in this story, in its sadness, you see that justice will be done. That's the point of our sermon today. Justice will be done. What does it mean to do justice? There's a lot of definitions of justice today, social justice, even climate justice. Um, We need to be careful and be biblical when we talk about justice. I preached a whole sermon on this when we were preaching through Isaiah. I'll see if I can find it and link it on Facebook. Um, But basically, to to give a, 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 a snapshot, justice means to live in a way that is right with God and right with your neighbor, especially the poor. Isaiah talks about justice and righteousness. They're really two overlapping terms which best describe what we would talk about justice today. And justice in the scripture often means righting the wrongs, clearing the foundation so that you can do righteousness, build good things on top of that. And you can tell when a society is just and right by the way that it cares for the poor and the oppressed, as God does. And this story tells you and me how we are to respond to a lack of justice, to injustice, to oppression. And we're going to see three things. First is that when you are innocent, when you are righteous, but innocent, endure suffering because justice will be done. This is a very tragic story of Naboth. It starts off with a king in a bad mood. In fact, I I kind of wish that I read verse 43 of chapter 20. Because 43 says, And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Chapter 20, the Lord gives Ahab a victory over Syria. Honestly, a victory that he does not deserve. But Ahab does not obey the Lord, he fails to execute the wicked enemy king. And so the Lord publicly humiliates him by an unnamed prophet for sparing the king, and it says he goes home vexed and sullen. He's got a pouty face on, his tail between his legs. And as Ahab comes home, what should he see but Naboth tending his vineyard? It's a nice little place. It would be a good spot for a little kingly garden. You know, grow some vegetables, commemorate your victory. And if you're feeling down, what's a better way to cheer yourself up than to get yourself a little something? That's yeah, a king-sized little something. And, and so Ahab offers Naboth a good deal. I'll, yeah, I'll give you its value and better somewhere else if you'll just relocate and give me your land. To which Naboth says very politely... Very respectfully, no deal, Your Majesty. Now, why would he do this? Well, you see, it is Naboth's inheritance. It's passed down from generation to generation as God's gift to Naboth through his ancestors. And this story makes this very clear. if, If you might have heard, I don't know if you noticed, but it just says over and over, Naboth, and not just Naboth, but Naboth, the Jezreelite, right? he's a descendant of Jezreel. This is his land. There's somewhere in York County a Barshinger Lane. Now, my family maybe distantly owned that land, and, and so, you know, it's... it's Very distantly connected, certainly have no legal claim to it now, but if you had a Barshinger who lived on that, in Barshinger Lane, it's kind of like that here. This is my home that the Lord's given to me. Uh, This is the land that's at the core of the covenant promises of Abraham, that promises God's dwelling with us in an intimate way. This is actually a little picture of the new heaven and the new earth. I cannot give this up, King, any more than I would sell off my children. So Ahab, not really kind of tone deaf to the niceties of, I don't know, basic covenantal promises, goes away even more upset. He won't give me his vineyard. And he goes home. Once again, those words, vexed and sullen, to pout. And, of course, Jezebel finds out the story, and she has a very different response to Ahab. Right? Jezebel came from Tyre and Sidon. She's a, a princess, and, and where she comes, the king does what he wants, and nobody can stop him. You know, In their, their exchange here, Jezebel essentially says, you are such a lightweight. Are you the king of Israel or not? Just, you know, I'll fix this for you. I'll show you how it's done. And the story tells about Naboth's tragic downfall, how Jezebel, with King Ahab's power, sets him up, has him framed, and he's killed. And Ahab gets his vegetable garden. I don't think anyone could say that this is a happy end to a story. Why is it so wrong? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, Ahab did exactly the opposite of what he should have done as a king. Kings back then were called fathers. Right? It was an honorific title, but, but it says something about what a king was supposed to do. They were supposed to protect their subjects, and especially the king of Israel, as he is mentioned very explicitly, was supposed to protect God's people. And instead, what you see here is that the protector has become the predator. It's a terrible thing when that happens. And Ahab pounces on Naboth for personal petty gain. What's also quite tragic that Naboth died because he insisted on doing what is right. Naboth refused the king, perhaps knowing full well what would happen. Equally tragic is that the elders of the city went along with it. They weren't willing to stick their necks out. But here was a man, and he made a stand for righteousness. He did what was right, and he suffers. And it's not said in the story, but implicit, is that his family suffered too. Not only did they lose their, their main head and protector and the one who would be providing for them, but they're penniless. They're kicked out. They're destitute. They, they are now reduced to living off of other extended family or begging. But there's even another thing that makes this tragic. Jezebel, in Ahab's name, uses the very laws that God put in place to protect the people and show their love to him and twisted them for Ahab's gain. Right? These, these laws, if you read through the Pentateuch, these laws about not taking the Lord's name in vain, these laws about witness, this is all about protecting the people and it's the laws of the sign of God's love for them. And yet Ahab just takes these covenant laws which makes Israel holy and uses them as a tool to dispose of Naboth. And almost everything is wrong with this situation and for the moment... If you stop at verse 16, Ahab wins. Naboth dies, he gets his vegetable garden. There's an application for us. There is a time, Christian, that God may call you and me to be a righteous sufferer for his name. Where you lose much or even everything you have to do what is right and pleases him. You may have to take a stand at work, in the public, and, and, and maybe people set you up and you become the fall guy, you become the fall girl. We see our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who are jailed and lose possessions and their lives because they claim the name of Jesus. And do you know what? Sometimes in this world, in that suffering, God doesn't rescue you. Sometimes you don't get a Daniel in the lion's den moment. Sometimes there's not a fourth person in the fiery per- furnace. Sometimes you just die. And that may be your best life now. That you have the opportunity to suffer for God's righteousness. And we can stop and say, if you do not believe that there is a new heavens and a new earth, this makes no sense whatsoever. But if you know Jesus... And he calls you to do this. This is one of the highest honors in showing your love for him as you imitate him. Think about the apostles in Acts who are first warned not to preach Christ and then the second time they are beaten and released and they say they are joyful that they have the opportunity to suffer for their name, for the name of Jesus. It's a different mindset that you can only have you know the Savior. And it may be Christian that, like Naboth, God calls you to suffer for his sake as a righteous sufferer, not completely perfect, but innocent in a situation. And when that happens, realize that this life is not all there is. Justice will be done. But you see, starting in verse 17, that there's another way that we need to... Enact, uh, to in, interact with injustice. When you are someone who holds influence or power, it is your duty to fight oppression. Injustice must be done. How does God respond to Ahab? He, he doesn't rescue Naboth. Naboth is killed. But how does God respond to Ahab? He sends Elijah to him. And Elijah goes and calls out his murderous deeds and pronounces justice that Ahab will receive what he has given to Naboth. In fact, it will it will extend to his family, not only for this incident, but but for the way he has completely forsaken the Lord. But but this is the final straw and and God says, "You have done this. You and your family will receive the same exact type of justice." And what you see here in Elijah calling out Ahab is consistent with God's Attitude towards those who oppress and those who receive injustice. God hates injustice and oppression and he wants his people to fight against it. In Isaiah chapter 1, 17 and 18, right before that beautiful segment of verses that says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. God says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Elijah's actions are a challenge to us as Christians. And I think here is where we, we need to look at ourselves and as a community and say, are there ways that we have been inconsistent or blind? to recognizing oppression. I would argue that we have, not always, but there are ways that we as Christians have turned a blind eye either knowingly or unknowingly. There are times that we have been wonderful stalwarts for truth in the the oppressed. We think about the elderly whose, whose lives may be taken, we fight euthanasia, we fight abortion, we fight for religious rights and freedom. These are very important. But we think about if you think about the biblical definition of oppression being the strong and those in power preying on the weak, there are other areas that we have not been as keen to either understand or call out. We've been talking and discussing about these a little bit in the wake of, of George Floyd. This is a really hard subject, because of how complex it is, but I think we can all say, and we should all say, that racism is still real. There are echoes of racism, not just uh, against blacks, but um, against other minorities and between minorities. There's a story, a woman, she was writing on the fact that racism still is alive. She She was white and she had a Korean sister. She was adopted into the family. And they both had to go to a, a public office to get something renewed. I'm not quite sure what it was, a driver's license or something along those lines. And her sister went, and they just gave her a real hard time. You don't have this. You don't have that. You need to get all these things in order. Uh, and so she went home, and she got them all, and then she was able to get approved whatever document she needed. And she just said to her white sister, hey, by the way, just you know, they're really sticklers, you know, crossing all the... T's, dotting all the I's, just make sure you, you got your ducks in a row. And she, she comes in and the person looks at her and without batting an eye, doesn't ask for any of those documents and says, here you go. And her sister went out into the car and she called her sister and talked about how unfair it was and how they, they made it too hard to, far too hard on her sister who wasn't like her. Right? There's, there are ways we can see echoes of racism in our society. There's we could talk about systems that, that are unjust, where people don't necessarily have a privilege or a lack of opportunity, perhaps, is a better way of saying it. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I remember reading about uh, Mark Gornick, who was, I believe, a student of Westminster, and he went in to a very urban area in Baltimore to start a church and wanted to work on renewing the community because of the gospel. He had his heart set on that, and he went to apply for a credit card, and it was denied because of his zip code. He's a white guy, but they couldn't see that. They could just see that he was in a very depressed area and said, can't take that risk. Um, The army recently, and this has happened a lot, this has happened before George George Floyd, so this wasn't a knee-jerk reaction, but the army has been doing studies and showing that people, officers who sit on promotion boards, tend to choose people like themselves. And it may not even be conscious. It may be a subconscious thing. And so the army is actually removing the photograph that will come that would normally be what was called your handshake for the promotion board. And they're talking about removing, perhaps pronouns and names so that that's a completely blind selection. You don't know who you're selecting. you're just selecting them based on the merits of their evaluations. And the Army has seen studies showing that selections go differently. It's more just when that happens. And so we, we can see areas in life where it is unfair. And, and we need to make sure that we, we talk about that and we call it out when it's possible. And I can only speak for myself here. It's very dangerous when you say, you know, we as Christians have done poorly here. I can only speak for myself. But I will say that in the last five years it has become clear to me that I have underestimated the impact of latent racism and bias against other certain minorities. It's there. Why would that be? I'll just talk for myself. Some of it is that I was ignorant of it. Like like our next door neighbors at creation who are blowing generator noise and smoke into our little plot. Perhaps they didn't even realize or consider those effects. They're, they're just enjoying the good setup that they have. They're not wishing us any will, ill will. They just, they just don't know. Uh, probably, if I'm honest, I, I know my heart is tricky. It's probably that I am biased against people towards people who are naturally more like me. That That's not the way of the gospel. I don't want to be like that. I ask God to, to fight those impulses in my, my heart and transform me. But that's, there's probably something going there. There's another problem, right, that people who disagree with me and might be pointing these out have solutions that I think are are really unhelpful. Something like the welfare state, which we think, that's that's not been very good at all. That's actually done more damage than, than good. But people of God, I do believe we have a challenge here. We must not be blind to injustice and oppression. And at the same time, we, we must use biblical language of what oppression and justice is. We can't surrender to other ideas, other, other calls, which are actually against Scripture. So the application here is that justice must be done. And here we need to be very careful that we do not ask somebody else to be a righteous sufferer. The church in the past, and I would especially say when the church was not acting like the church, when you had a lot of nominal Christians, when you had a lot of uh, conquering in Jesus' name, but the church would sometimes say, Christians would say to other people in pain, well, you know, you're suffering right now, and it's, and it's really bad, but God calls you to be a righteous sufferer, and don't worry, it'll be okay in heaven. Now, when God calls you to be a sufferer, You are to do that with joy. But when you have the power to set someone else free, you don't dare say, just endure in your suffering. Like Elijah, use your influence to honor God. And that means that we should call out clear areas of oppression. When it's obvious that it's unfair and it's not right, we should say this is wrong. As a soldier, I am a little sad that we're giving up the, the official army photo because there is something about it in which you show that you care about your uniform, you, you know, have your awards all right, you take pride in your possession. I kind of wish that it could be hung up or something like that, though even that would show the, the male-female because the style of the uniform is different. I, I'm sad that that's going out of the way, but I also recognize if this is not being fair to certain people, we need to correct that. And in fact, the woman who told the story about her sister, uh, an Asian sister who was given a hard time, said, you know, I went out and called and complained to my sister about those racist people. What I should have done was gone in and talked to the management and said, you have a problem here. We need to call out areas, even in small things. Uh, I've heard stories uh, after George Floyd from uh, Penn State football players who were, who were black and traveling through some of the heartland of PA and Ohio. And they would say, you know, I would go out and get gas and I would be called degrading things. I would be verbally dressed down because of my color at a gas station. And I just wonder, if you were there and you witnessed that, what would you do? Could you step in and say to that person, first of all, what you're saying is wrong. It's inappropriate and it's destructive. And then could you turn to, the, to that person who's been insulted and said, friend, or even brother or sister, you, you are a person made in God's image and you are valuable in his sight, just like I am. Can I shake your hand? Obviously, non-COVID, right? But blessings. Could you speak out and counteract that? We do need to fight against and uh, call out areas of oppression. We also need to give voices to those who have been wounded. It is easy to bury oppression because it's uncomfortable to hear. Honestly, it can get awkward really fast. One of the areas of oppression I haven't addressed are those who have been sexually assaulted or molested. Think about it, it is one of the worst forms of oppression. The strong preying on the weak, the protector, destroying the vulnerable. And unfortunately, there are times that we have not handled this well in the evangelical church i sure there's many reasons for this. I was thinking about it. Probably one is that we don't know how to talk about sexuality well in general. And if we can't talk about it well as God's good gift, how can we talk about it when it's twisted? But there are, you're probably familiar with, distressing incidences of churches that have, they hide rather than expose sexual abuse in its midst. Right? We, we can, it's easy to bury oppression when someone speaks out. Instead of giving the oppressed a chance to speak and call out for justice. You may have heard the name Rachel Den Hollander. She's a sister in Christ. She tells her story. She was abused in a church as a little girl growing up. And then as a gymnast seeking relief from from some strains and treatments, she was abused multiple times by then Dr. Larry Nasser of Michigan State University. And she eventually went on, many years later, to expose Nasser's abuse with the help of of other women who had experienced the same treatment. And she writes uh, in her book, What Is a Girl Worth?, uh, about what an uphill battle it was. About how... Two of her four churches in her life failed to help her and, and love her well, often because of good intentions, but not handling the situation well. It's a hard book. It's a raw book. It's a gripping book. But if you want to learn more about how to care for people who have experienced sexual abuse, I recommend it, or you can listen to it. She reads the story herself. But we need to care well for everyone who has experienced depression, and that includes listening to uncomfortable stories of suffering. And I will just say, as your pastor, if you have been uh, sexually abused in any way, if you have been hurt or molested, it is wrong, it grieves God, it should not happen again, and you should be protected and cared for, and your oppressor should be brought to justice. And we as a session support you. Talk to us, or if you're uncomfortable with that, get someone else you can talk to and bring the matter to us. Christians, justice must be done. When we have the power, we must use God's categories for justice and speak out and act as we have opportunity. Like over a long period, Christianities in Rome that uh, eliminated the gladiatorial games, or Wilberforce and his team who stopped the Atlantic slave trade. This is what God has called us to do, and there's, we have an encouragement that we of all people should be the most vocal because our worldview, what we believe, is the most consistent for fighting injustice. But your Saviour came and, and made it a point to talk about releasing the captive from oppression. He cared for the poor, he cared for the widow. He died and, and rose to release us from the bondage of sin, including injustice. We also, as Christians, have a challenge because it is doubly sad when we turn a blind eye to oppression. If if you and I believe in the return of Jesus and the final judgment, where all things will be made right, then in the present reality, you must live in such a way that reflects that future. That's what we're called to. It doesn't mean we can solve all the world's problems. Only Jesus can do that. But we must cry out with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Well, how do you get this justice? Um, you know, we can only—we're very limited. You can only speak out with what you see and the influence that God gives you. How can this justice really, truly happen? Not just the signs that we point to. To understand that, you have to witness the greatest injustice in the world. You see, in Jesus at the cross, justice has already been done. The incredible thing about King Ahab is the end of his story that he asks for forgiveness and in some sense receives it now are there consequences for what he did? yes, Um, he will die in battle shortly everything that was said about his family will happen but Ahab Ahab, he repents and receives forgiveness and this is after the. it's clear, the author bends over backwards that Ahab is one of the worst kings ever He turned his back on God. He brought a drought to the land because of his unfaithfulness and then showed no concern for his people, just his livestock. He is that protector who's preyed on the innocent. He is a very bad man, no matter how you look at it. And he was able to receive mercy. Isn't that unjust? It's an Old Testament mystery. You look at it. He sinned with a high hand. He deserved death. And yet he received forgiveness because of another king that would come. The king that we read about in Isaiah 53. The king who would willingly accept the role of the righteous sufferer. And what happened to this king was the opposite of justice. The good that he did, he offers to his people. The oppression and wrong that they did. He took the consequences himself. Of course, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth and climaxing in his payment for sins on the cross. The cross, truly understood, is very unpopular today. Many people find it unnecessary. It's cosmic child abuse. God torturing his son for no reason whatsoever. But you see, for Ahab that wicked king with his oppression and injustice, somebody had to receive justice for it. And if it wasn't him, there was no other way but the cross. And if you're honest, it's the case for you and me too. Because each one of us has committed injustice. You know, there is a subtle danger about calling out other people's sins. We want to make large gaps between us and, and the truly bad people. But the funny thing is, is that when you call other people's sins, it's too easy to be blind to your own. And sure, we're not like Ahab, but we really haven't had a chance, have we? But in our everyday lives, the way that we silently judge other people the way that we cut them down and dehumanize them in social media. Those ways show that we too can be oppressors. Those who call out the oppressors often become oppressive themselves. And I want you to realize and understand that as you fight oppression, you first have to realize that the problem is also in your own heart. Realize that you need justice for your own sins as well. And if this world is to be a just place, you should receive what you deserve. And if there is no mercy for the Ahabs, the Larry Nasters, the Jerry Sanduskies of this world, there's no mercy for you either. Eternal judgment before a righteous and holy God is what you deserve. And it's a fearful thing. Here's the incredible thing. God provides mercy for you at the cross of Jesus. This is the beauty and mystery of God becoming man for you. John Stott said, The essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. So I want to ask you today, have you received that mercy? Have you claimed Jesus of the Lord, as the Lord of your life, have you recognized the beauty of the king who suffered injustice caused by your very own rebellion and oppression to offer you salvation and a new life? Or do you still chafe at his, right, his rightful rule over your life and call it tyrannical and oppressive? No amount of good deeds, no amount of social justice, no amount of Facebook posts or activism can bring the jet, bridge the gap between you and God. Give your life to Jesus and receive and accept his grace and mercy, which he bought for you at the cost of his own life. Christians, when, not if, but when you speak and act out against injustice, do it from the humility of the cross. Weep for the pain of the oppressed. Call out the evil like it is, abortion, racism, sexual abuse, all of it and more. But do it without self-righteousness or smug condemnation. Do it as one who has received the unjust mercy of the cross. You can model and offer healing and mercy to oppressor and oppressed alike because you've experienced it yourself. As long as we live in this broken world, life will be unfair. It will not always be right. That will not change until Jesus comes back. But we have the hope and the promise that one day all things will be made right. And so in the meantime, let us suffer well when God calls us to it. And let us fight through oppression as God gives us the chance. And let us rejoice that God offers true healing and mercy in the gospel. Because in the end, we know, each one of us, that justice will be done. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you that when you say we are to love you, it also has direct impact on how we love our neighbors. And if we are to truly love our neighbors, we have to know and understand you and love you well and be gripped by your gospel. Lord, would you help us to live out a life that is consistent with the mercy that you've given to us? Help us not to think that we need to solve all the world's problems, but we do need to be faithful both in suffering and fighting oppression as you assign it to us. Thank you for our wonderful Savior who was stricken for us. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.